Hello everybody, welcome to episode 52 of the Ask Abhijit show. As you know, tonight, today, wherever you are, uh, today is a live video chat episode, which means I'm going to be taking live video chat, qu- chat questions from all of you. The link for joining the video chat is on top of the chat box. Unfortunately, only 10 people can join at a time and right now I can see that the room is full. So, okay. So keep trying those of you who want to join. And the rules are very simple. There are three topics, three very broad topics, history, geopolitics, and science. And I am going to be taking one question per person. So last week also I had said one question per person, but then I took many questions per people per person. So this time I want uh, more people to get the chance to be on the show. So I'm going to take only one question per person. All right. So that's the very simple basic rules. So. Uh, let me first see who all is there with us. Sharda Pandey, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Mohit Manjurekar, Hiramb, Eren, Aditi Sen Gupta Pal, Shah, Chandrabhan, Moria, I am sorry, Babu, <laughs> Goodwill, Yash More, Christopher Anthony, aka Satya Teja, Devi Gurav, Anandat, Nishan Diman, Kavita Rana, Harjain, Itachi Uchiba, Paramesh, Rohan Kumar, Atharva, Param. Anthony Mack, Samarth, Boite, Parvez, A.R., Premti Party, Chaitanya, Angad, Kingster, Kashyap, Sujal, Sampriti, Abhijit Aengar, Priti Pandey, Arga Sarkar, Shibani, Harshada, Varun Raj, Akash Rathor, and lots and lots and lots of people. So nice to see you all. Always a great honor that you all join my live broadcasts. Always very grateful to all of you. Good evening and good day to all of you, wherever you are. All right, let's get into the questions. And I can see there are a number of people waiting to join uh, the broadcast. So let us start with Pranav Patil. Hello, Pranav. How are you doing? I'm fine, sir. How are you? I'm very well. I'm, uh, where are you from? I'm from Bangalore, sir. Karnataka. Very, very nice. Nice. So nice to see you. So what's your question? Sir, my uh, question is that uh, can you suggest books about the Islamic invasion of India since uh, there's a lot, you tell a lot about it, but we want to know the sources. See, I haven't read one book or two books or something. I have read, I've been reading books since since I was like, a, before I was 10 years old. So unfortunately, the, the problem is that uh, when it comes to the Islamic or Turkic invasions of India, very few people have written comp- uh, a uh, proper book. I mean, you will uh, unfortunately not find a single book that deals with this specific topic. So what I have done is I have read lots of books, hundreds of books. I've read thousands of research papers and articles and all that, magazine articles and uh, research articles. and all. So that's how I, I have got my information, my knowledge. I wish I could refer, I could suggest one book or three books to you, but it's not going to be possible because there is no such thing. So if you want to learn about this, you're going to have to do your due diligence. You're going to have to trawl the internet for articles. You're going to have to read books. I mean, I can't think of a single book that deals with this topic. You see, that's the unfortunate thing. I, I really appreciate that you are interested in this particular uh, portion of our history. It is a very important phase, one that has been completely neglected by historians, deliberately, of course. So I apologize that I am unable to give you a single book or two books. What I would suggest is that you're very young. I really like that. So you know what? You've got an entire lifetime ahead of you. So whenever you get some free time, 
do some research do some original research uh, of your own do some reading the internet today contains all the sources of information and knowledge that we can hope for and most of it is if you know where to look it's available for free so so spend some time research things read as much as you can and i think you will get more information from the internet than actually from uh, various textbooks so that's what i can say sir thank you very much for your question very nice seeing you huh? very nice seeing you yes, all right thank you sir most welcome all the best bye bye okay who else shall we take let us take ruch okay ruchit gyani hi ruchit good evening good day hello sir good evening sir my question yes, where to are you is can you please uh, elaborate on kalidas on whom kalidas the great sanskrit okay kalidas yes uh, one of the one of the greatest dramatists of all time of in human history so kalidas has written i mean we don't quite know when kalidas lived because as you know all our sources of information have disappeared they've been wiped out uh, he i believe he wrote his plays in uh, classical sanskrit uh, what are the names of the plays um, was it dushyant no i think there is one called bhas and there is one called kalidas so there are two of these uh so i i can't give you the exact names of the plays and all but he's one of the greatest uh, dramatists and writers of classical sanskrit um very interesting uh, plays that he has written that have been part of our uh, lore for a very long time so if you know what as right now i cannot think of the exact names of those plays and all that of the top of my head but you have suggested a very interesting topic actually kalidas is a very very uh, important part of our literary history so what i can do is in the future i'll make a video about about kalidas and uh, the plays that he wrote and his impact on uh, our cultural history our literary history and possibly in the history uh, in the in the literary scene worldwide actually so that's what i can do in the future right now i can't think of the specific details about kalidas so that's what i can say right now so right? my great grandfather he wrote yes. a book on uh, on the timeline of kalidas the okay. date of kalidas by shivdatta gyani right. it would be great shivdatta gyani for that yes sir the date of kalidas is it available on amazon or flipkart or something yes sir yes sir Awesome, awesome. That's great. I shall try and find the book. And thank you for the reference. I would request all the viewers to take that as a as a, as the reference for Kalidas. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. Okay, who else shall we bring in? Okay, let us bring in Mr. I. Mr. I. Good evening. Hello, sir. I, sir, I'm a very big fan of you, sir. I, I can't. Very tell, nice to but... meet you. Yeah. So, so, what's your name? Where are you from? Sir, uh, my name is actually my name. Real name is Ishan, and I'm from. I actually used to write few comic strips, and there was a detective character called Mister Eyes. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm from Chennai. 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 All right. What's your question? Very nice. Very nice. What's your question? Yeah. Actually, see, I have a lot of bottled up questions, but I can only ask one question, sir. Can you please talk about Saladin? Salahuddin Ayyubi. Yes, Saladin. He yes. is considered to be one of the greatest heroes of the Islamic world. So yeah. Salahuddin Ayyubi was born, I think, somewhere in the... Uh, I don't remember. Syria, was it? Uh, yeah. So he, yeah, so he was born in the Middle East. 
uh, he is known his exploits uh, that are so famous are about uh, fighting of the european crusaders who wanted to retake jerusalem and the so called holy land which is the original uh, uh, homeland of the jews and it is considered to be the birthplace of the abrahamic religions of christianity and uh, jerusalem is the holiest uh, uh, city of the jews and it is also yeah. a very holy place in christianity so the crusaders were uh, there were a number of crusades that came in from europe into uh, the middle east and the objective was to retake the holy land and jerusalem and, and so on and they actually succeeded from uh, uh, at certain points in time so salahuddin ayubi his his main exploits were to repulse the crusaders and to uh, give them the final defeat which essentially ended the european rule over the middle east so he was born in i believe an aristocratic kind of family his father was a governor of sort yeah. of some uh, small town or something right and uh, he rose to prominence because of his brilliance because he was very capable as as a military commander and all that and he eventually became the king of egypt you know he became the sultan yeah. of egypt de facto i mean he was supposed to be the governor of egypt but he became so powerful he raised an army he rebuilt the the city of cairo and so on uh, was it was it cairo was it alexandria one of these two yeah cairo cairo so, yeah, yeah cairo yeah cairo right it had been destroyed in warfare and all that so he rebuilt that he built an enormous army and he became more powerful than his overlord and eventually he got involved in the uh, resistance to the crusades and he was able to prevail there as well and uh, he is uh, treated as a hero because of his uh, alleged chivalry because he was very uh, gracious even towards his enemies and so on so that's a little bit of about saladin i think there are a few yeah. books about him and uh, yeah. so so yeah that's that is the uh, the role of saladin in history uh, so uh, you know what the the there are people who want to glorify the turks and all i think saladin i think was a kurd he was not so a turk he was an arab that, this is a person who should really be glorified i am saying that in in case they want to find an islamic hero they should look up to saladin because he actually had many uh, significant achievements uh, right now the turks are trying to uh, to valorize this guy called jalaluddin khwarezmi who was a total <laughs> loser i mean there is this uh, turkish uh, there is this turkish serial called ertugrul something or yeah, the other yeah. in which they are valorizing ertugrul yes so now they are also trying to do the same for jalaluddin khwarezmi who lost ignominiously to chinggis khan and who was the last king of his dynasty he presided over the dissolution and destruction of his dynasty and the turks are trying to valorize him and turn him into a, some sort of history, some sort of hero so what i would recommend is that if you want a hero in your in your in the islamic world they should look up to saladin not jalaluddin so so good yeah, question sir, sir. Actually, good question yeah 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 sir actually i actually like his one of his quotes i don't remember it fully but it goes like don't get in the habit of spilling blood for blood does not sleep i can't remember the full quote there are two three lines before they don't get the habit but i can't exactly remember it it's interesting it was against the crusaders who were you know raiding the caravans through uh, middle east and disturbing the hajj to if i'm not wrong mecca right all right yeah. sir very nice to meet sir. you great question one question yeah, so only just... I, i'm, I'm... <laughs> all right yeah so just yeah just one kind request sir can yes. in the future someday can you make a video on the iron chancellor the so called iron chancellor of germany otto von bismarck very good topic i shall 
definitely put it on my to do list all right thank you so much yeah. thank you so much nice to meet you bye good night thank you sir all right who else shall we bring in who else shall we bring in uh let us bring in parama hi parama hi sir good evening. thanks for choosing me again yeah oh have you been here before okay you have yeah. right yeah this is my second time i already you know participated you in the lucky. first live you got really lucky <laughs> yeah 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 so what's I your question yeah so i have uh, you know i have a long question today i have to read it out so please go on please Yeah, yeah yeah so the my question is like why history has two sides like uh, left history and right history like nowadays this has become political like my point is like is this just political or you know um, is this opinion based like for example some people say that marathas did invade west bengal and created a lot of trouble and some people say that what whatever did they did it was for a noble act and it was for a noble cause so my question is like what is this thing because the history is just one fact how can it have two sides like completely two different sides so yeah good question very good question so what i would say is that see history is all written by individuals every individual has a certain bias a certain perspective that is shaped by their environment their upbringing their world view their beliefs their religion their culture and so on and by the by their shared experiences their lived experiences and all that so every individual has a certain bias and every hmm. historian has a certain bias and of late history has been weaponized history has been turned into a, a propaganda art kind of kind of thing so what napoleon said is that history is a set of lies agreed upon the ones who win the wars and who are the winners they get to write the history and yeah, therefore yeah, we yeah. always see these biased accounts uh, unfortunately mm. in the past 2000 10000 years of uh, human existence we did not have video cameras audio equipment so we were not able to record anything so the only yeah. sources we have are the accounts of those who wrote history and the accounts that survived in, in our case in mm. india we had these enormous accounts of history which were all burned in the destruction of our of our universities and libraries and that's why we lost it now when it comes to the example that we gave the marathas mm. these lies have been repeated thousands of times they are repeated thousands of times every year in the in the textbooks in the school, in the classrooms and all so the children they grow up believing this that this is our history that the marathas raided us and they destroyed uh, bengal and they burned everything and they, there is this alleged poem that our mothers used to sing and so on the yeah. bengalis believe that they had this enormous uh, tradition of of uh, sati 10000 plus cases of sati every year in bengal which is yeah. utter lies which is all propaganda again but if you repeat this thousands of time to times to mm-hmm. a child who is growing up they are going to end up believing it and i don't blame them for it you see i don't blame the people who believe all this propaganda because they have grown up since their very beginning of life believing all this being taught all this by their teachers and that that's the thing so the main thing is that history and news as well have, have become propaganda tools you have political mm-hmm. see uh historians have traditionally been uh paid for by either yeah. the state or by certain political parties and the same goes for news organizations until recently mm-hmm. we used to think news is the most unbiased thing in the world today we find the news no, comes in not. various flavors today yeah, we find yeah, the yeah. news comes in various flavors various political flavors and so does yeah. history so that's the thing that we, so we have to be very careful about what we believe now that we have kind of grown up so we should be yeah. aware acutely aware of the fact that everything is potentially flawed and propaganda you know so that's what i would say yeah. but 
अच्छा इफ दिस इज द ट्रूथ देन आई माई क्वेश्चन वेन इट कम्स टू वेस्ट बेंगाल देर लाइक देर आर लॉट ऑफ थिंग्स दैट वी हैव लर्न फ्रॉम द चाइल्ड हुड लाइक फॉर एग्जाम्पल स्टी एंड यू नो हाउ राजा राम मोहन रॉय हैज स्टॉप्ड इट एंड देन देर वॉज चाइल्ड मैरिज एंड एवरीथिंग सो माई क्वेश्चन लाइक वॉज एवरीथिंग वॉज सिंपली अ लाई बिकॉज लाइक ऑल माई चाइल्ड हुड वी हैव लर्न दिस थिंग्स यू नो दिस वॉज आवर हिस्ट्री सो लाइक now at this point of time we have to all unlearn whatever things we have learned at the past i agree i mean i there was a point in my life when i realized everything i have learned is a lie i mean everything we have learned in the textbooks most of it turned out to be lies because when you yeah. look beyond the textbooks when you look at the research papers actual factual data and all we find a mm. whole different story that actually stares us in the face so it is all about are we willing to accept the fact that all our mental conditioning has been has been a lie and we need to re uh, learn how to think again learn what to believe again or are we going to just be comfortable and say nahi nahi main kuch nahi sochu i will not go into anything i will not believe anything new i'm just comfortable believing yeah. what i have always believed it's about are we willing to grow or are we or do we are we just comfortable believing what we believe that's all so i think most of us have the capability to to unlearn relearn and to grow as individuals mm-hmm. so that is what i would uh, exhort everybody to do because you know what mm-hmm. it is unfortunately true that everything we have been taught most of it has been mm-hmm. lies that's true but so now like currently right now if i say like this is the history this is the original history and some other people say that that is the original history people immediately label them as rightist or leftist this is something that i really hate like if you are speaking something like this people will tell you you are this and if i am speaking yeah. like that people will tell you that you are this welcome to the world i see i face this every day <laughs> people people label me under all kinds of categories you know yeah. well there's nothing you can, see there's nothing you can do to control the actions of others what you can yeah. do is you decide what to do with your life that's it so live yeah. your best life and forget about what others are saying people will talk yeah. right that's how yeah, it is yeah yeah absolutely absolutely All right, Parama. Wonderful question. Yeah. Nice meeting you again, yeah. and uh, thank you. Hope sir. to nice see you to again. Nice to meet you again too. Yeah, yeah. Same. All sir. right. Good night, sir. All right. Bye. All right. Let's take some more questions. That was a wonderful question by Parama. Let me bring in Pranav Patel. Hello, Pranav Patel. Are you? Oh, yeah. I, you you already asked the question. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, sir. My, yes, sir. My Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Sorry. Okay, I'll I'll get somebody else. Thank you. Okay, let us bring in Shikhar. Shikhar, hi. Yes, sir. Hello and good evening, sir. Ha. So where are you from, Shikhar? Sir, I am from Mirzapur. It's in UP. All right. And yes, what's sir. your question, sir? Sir, my question is. I'm really sorry, but it's very synonymous to what Parma asked. that whenever we like in today's time the one of the main sources for an, our information is internet and whenever we read about any event or any topic on the internet we find very opinionated and biased individuals who are very firm about their views so just yes. how to filter whatever we read or how to very good like question. like how to filter it and whenever we look at any political event or any event like today's very hot topic is the aryan khan and all that case so how to look at it from an unbiased eye when everybody is so opinionated about it all right i uh, let me tell you how to do that 
ignore people's words ignore people's opinions just go straight for the facts it's called first principles thinking first principles thinking is in opposition to dogmatic thinking dogmatic thinking means you are believing you are you are relying upon the opinions and words of other people that is one way of thinking okay something has happened what do i do how do i form an opinion i will go and see my favorite three vloggers i will look and i will go and see my favorite three news channels and i will uh, read my favorite three bloggers and on the basis of these people's opinions i will form my own opinion that is that is called dogmatic thinking first principles thinking means you go to the actual source of the facts what has happened let's talk about uh, for example caa everybody is against caa and everybody is against the farm laws so one way of looking at it is to look at other people's opinions about caa and the farm laws the other thing is to use your own intelligence read the actual law what is written in the law and then based on what the government on the bill that has been passed what has been written in the law you use your own intelligence which you have been blessed with we are all blessed with intelligence use your own intelligence your own intellect and use your own sense of judgment to parse through the words in the in the law in the bill which is available for free online it's available to all of us and based on that you form your own opinion instead of relying on the opinions of others that's the simple way of of not falling prey to all kinds of misinformation and propaganda right unfortunately and and you know what the problem is that our education system tells you to do the opposite it tells you to believe what the teachers are teaching you and it tells you to believe what is written in the textbooks and don't look anywhere else because you are supposed to memorize the textbook and reproduce it in the exams and you are supposed to unquestioningly blindly obediently believe your teacher and that is what we go through for year after year for almost two decades and that's why we end up in this mental state that we just look for information in, in what others are saying instead of looking for the actual sources of information okay so so that is the way to ensure that you uh, don't fall prey to propaganda and misinformation that so do is the, the research by yourself absolutely rely and trust on your own wisdom and intelligence we are all intelligent enough but we our education system makes us believe that we are not intelligent so uh, learn to trust yourself learn to trust your intelligence and look for the actual sources of information all right okay. thank you sir thank you so much wonderful question all right thank i'll you, see you sir. next time hopefully all right thanks <laughs> bye bye all right uh let me bring in somebody else let me bring in somebody else we have yash kilidar yes sir hi yash good evening sir good evening where are you from sir i'm from jhansi uttar pradesh india very nice what's your question sir yes sir yes sir first of all i'm a very very big fan of yours sir you are doing a great great work for just uh, realizing as indians that what what we were and what we have become what is our potential what we could do in future so uh, should i ask my question or uh, am i audible to you yes i can hear you please ask your question yes sir so uh, my question is uh, like uh, like currently we are seeing uh, in the world of geopolitics uh, you said in previous video that we are in a, a stage in the world uh, like the 1930s the world is at the stage of realignments the countries the global powers right and there are many uh, you know uh, factors which could uh, play a very significant significant role in uh, somebody's interest like afghanistan like uh, taiwan's thing is going on so russia and china currently are uh, on the same page right 
and india's relation with russia are still warm and we are all uh, we are doing great deals with them but uh, you know that soviet era thing is missing right and we are uh, india is getting involved and indulged in the west like the us we are doing exercises we are buying some great stuff like apaches chinooks right and uh, c17 globe masters we are indulging with the west we are uh, we are uh, more cooperating with the west we are uh, doing uh, deals we are uh, we are in quad now although it's not a military uh, alliance but yeah we are engaging with them so what uh, is your Yeah, what is your thought on this? Like, uh, is US now a trustable ally? Because you said, uh, I know what the US is like. We all know what the US is. Uh, so the world is uh, on the stage of realignments. So what is your thought that from here where we could go? What will be the future? That's a very interesting and very long question. But okay, see, so here is. I'm really sorry, sir. I'm really sorry. No, no, no. Perfectly fine. So uh, the thing is that the world is always in a state of flux. The world is all ever yes. changing. Geopolitical uh, equations are always in a state of real real alignment. But right now, more than before, the world is changing. This seems to be the decade in which a lot of change is going to happen. So what does India need to do? Can we trust the US? No, we cannot trust the US. But we can trust them to follow their national interest. there is no trust in geopolitics there is no friendship in geopolitics there is no like or dislike in geopolitics i have a certain interest my country has a certain interest long term interest the other country has a certain long term national interest of their own what you can do is analyze in detail what their long term geopolitical and national interests are you understand what your interests are and then you see if there is any area of convergence either temporary or long term and then you play then you act according to those alignments and convergences potential convergences so right now the us and in uh, and india our interests uh, certainly converge because we are both concerned about the incredibly aggressive and uh, militaristic rise of china and the kind of actions they are taking the us doesn't want the chinese to become a superpower right india doesn't want china to become too powerful and too aggressive and because the chinese have interests on indian territory and so on the chinese yes. are they don't want india to to be a powerful country because it it is a threat to them and so on and so forth so currently our interests are uh, align right now the russians and the chinese their interests align to a certain extent they have a very fraught history and the russians and chinese do have nuclear missiles pointed at each other yes so it's always a complex thing what i would say is that the, the, this current decade is is going to be a decade of great change what we do in this decade is going to shape our long term future because india has two choices either we become powerful on our own economically and militarily or we will forever going to have to rely on other countries and that's not always going to be available to us Yes. So it's a decade of change. It is India's choice what India wants to do. We have all the potential in the uh, in the world. We have a very young, intelligent population, the most talented people in the world. We have all the resources in the world. We are a superpower in waiting. If we do the right moves, then in the next ten, twenty years, we can be a middle-income country. GDP per capita, overall GDP yes. could exceed ten trillion, fifteen trillion if we do the right things. Then mm. we could have a military strength commensurate with that. so it's yes. all up to our leadership what steps they take whether they they make certain mistakes or they avoid those mistakes and go in the right direction right so so that's yes, the future it all depends on yes, these sir. factors all right yes sir thank you so much for the question thank you thank you thank Bye -bye. you so much sir.
Okay, let's bring in some other people. Who else do we have? Who wants to come in? Okay, AG wants to come in. Hello, AG. Good evening. Yes, Good evening, sir. Nice speaking oh, to you. Hope so. nice I'm to from you. Maharashtra. I'm from Maharashtra. Okay, what's your question? Very nice, very nice. What's your question? What's your question? I got a bunch of them. I got a bunch of them. One question. You said one, one, one per person. Yes. Yes, yes. So, uh, the main one, what were the metric systems before the Brits or the so-called Mughals in India or Bharat? What was the which system? The metric system. Yes. Uh, the metric system is a very recent thing. It is something that was brought in after, uh, post the development of the imperial system of units. The imperial system of units is the foot, the pound and all that, the yard and uh, the gallon. So that is a system that's called the imperial system. It's a, it's something the British derived on their own. Uh, it, it developed in England. It's a British system. Uh, the mm -hmm. newest one, the metric system, is the kilometer, the centimeter, uh, uh, the kilogram and and so on and so forth that's the metric system that's the latest most scientific system that's the one that's in vogue everywhere in india we had our own systems of units i don't know what the noise is i'm gonna have to mute you so all right yeah okay I'm, i've muted you so it's fine okay so the system in india was we had our own system in the past uh we had a system, I, I don't know what the system itself was called. We had a, uh, the unit of weight, we had a number of units of weight. One was called the man. The man was a unit of weight. We had the tola in, in terms when it came to measuring the weights of precious metals, I believe. And uh, yeah, so we had the systems and these have been wiped out. Even during the Indus uh, era, the Sindhu Saraswati era of our civilization, we had we can see that there is this standardization of weights and measures. Whether you go to Harappa or Mohenjo-daro or Kalimangan or Lakhigiri or Birana or anywhere else, you find the same system of weights and measures. It was standardized across an enormous geographical region, which says that we have the same culture, the same civilization, and the same system of units and all that. Now, we don't know what it was called, but it was very much standardized. And that is the reason why we were, our ancestors were able to create this enormous, highly sophisticated, highly advanced urban civilization over such a large uh, amount of uh, land. So that's what we, so that's what we had. It is something that needs to be researched. I don't know what the system was called. It was the, in, in vogue more than five thousand years ago, right? So we have always had. I tried to system. Google it. Yeah, yeah, it's not available. There's no information available because our researchers have been sleeping for the past many decades. We have not done any research about this, but it is there. It's staring us in the face. We have all these systems of weights and measures, the standard weights and measures throughout this, this geography. We don't know what it was called, but it was very sophisticated. It was very precise as well. Very small weights up all the way up to very large weights and all that. So it's it's there. We always had this thing, and it, it is the characteristic of a highly developed and highly advanced, scientifically and technologically advanced civilization. So that's what we had. Good question. Sure. So I got two All things. Right. I got two things. I hope One I hope only. you meet you. Uh, I hope you meet you. I hope I meet you in person someday, yeah. and just to. make a video on time. Deep deep explanation about time. Sure, I will put that on my potential do to to do list. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. Okay, who else? Let me bring in Aparachit. 
Hi, good evening. Hello, sir. Am so I audible? Phone? You are audible. Am I yes. audible, sir? Uh, I'm from Telangana. I came last time. I think you know, sir. Okay, wonderful. Welcome. What's your question for today? First of all, hello, sir. Hello. My question is, I wrote some questions, so I'll only ask one. Yes. Sir, you in previous time you. in previous podcast you told that in politics you have to do certain agenda like uh, am unable to tell sir go ahead go ahead don't be nervous go ahead ah politi- politicians need to create some victimhood in order to get the power like mm-hmm. to win seats and for that they tell the lies like you know tamil party they say we are the dravidians and they convert the people of hindus in order to win the seats so why don't they just tell the truth and win the seats and they can win the seats by the by saying we are the one civilization no discrimination of hindu and muslims like that why don't they just tell the truth and win the seats why no, they do have Right, right. Good question. Good question. So, if I was a politician, which I won't be, but I, if I was a politician, I would not lie. But unfortunately, the politics, uh, this, this business, it's a business actually. It's a cutthroat business. Uh, you have to find every advantage you can over the other party and so on. So, the easiest way to win votes is to create a sense of discrimination, alienation, oppression, subjugation, and then say that we are the ones who are going to save you. We are going to tell you the real truth that you have all been oppressed for five thousand years by these white-skinned Aryans, and so on and so forth. And that's why we are going to save you. We are the Dravidian party. We are all Dravidians. We should stick together. Blah 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 blah. And that's how they win votes. This is standard. Uh, these are standard strategies and tactics in politics the worldwide, not just in India. And so that's what they are pursuing. The so so it's so it's it's kind of like geopolitics. There's no right or wrong. They will just do whatever they can to cling to power, to win power, and to stay in power. And lying is very much par for the course in politics. I would say that more than ninety percent, more than ninety nine percent of politicians are of this kind. the really great politicians you know that the true nationalists are less than 1% unfortunately the majority of politicians are like this they don't really care about the national interest or the or the uh, upliftment and progress of the country and the people they just want to come to power because power equates power translates into money so that's all it is politics is the greatest and most lucrative business in the country and that's why they will do anything to come to power and the easiest way is to create divisions in society and exploit those divisions that's just how it works unfortunately it's it's a it's just bad it's it's sad but that's how it is so that's your answer sir that's why they do they do it thank all you right? sir sorry for uh, i stopped in the middle not the at all not at all always nice to talk to you thank you so much thank you bye thank you sir Okay, let us bring in Bharat. Hi, Bharat. Hi, sir. Good evening. Great fan of, great fan of you. Very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. What's your question, sir? Where are you from, first of all? So I'm from Bagyanagar, that is Hyderabad. All right. So I listen to your podcast as religiously every day when I while I travel to my office. Thank you so much. Great honor for me. So, sir, my question is regarding Cold War era. So, yes. uh, we know the Cold War is a time of spies, 
and they even mentioned that india is a paradise for spies so i would like to understand what is the role of either kgb or caa in subverting the nation or uh, you know de- deciding what the policy that should needs to be taken by uh, the government so what was the their impact in the policy making of our leaders that's a good question so india see every country in the 19 uh, in the, in, the, in the 20th century was essentially in some way or the other a plague a playground for the cold war uh, tug of war between these two superpowers the usa and the ussr now india was very much a soviet satellite whether we like it or not that that's the case during the nehruvian regime during uh, because of the policies of mr nehru and later the later policies of the uh, succeeding uh, regimes india was very much on the soviet in the soviet camp not in the us camp so there was a great deal of infiltration there must have been some of it has been revealed some of it has been not but there was clearly a great deal of infiltration of the kgb and other soviet uh, instruments of power into the indian administrative and governance machinery and even in the academic academic sphere and so on and so forth some of it has been really revealed by a, a soviet defector to the uh, to the west yuri bejmenov i believe his name, name was so Mitra this has been revealed mitrokin archives and so on yes so much much of it has some, some of it has been revealed i think most of it has not been revealed i would say so we definitely certainly had that and of course the americans would not be would not want to be left behind so they also infiltrated various political parties and various parts of india they had access to a lot of cash and money and and therefore india's politicians i believe to some extent were playing both sides it's all about money politics is about money so the cia was involved the kgb was in, was involved i think the kgb's involvement has has been revealed to a greater extent than the involvement of the cia but clearly the cia also had a great deal of uh, of uh, you could say influence in india because see when this uh, when the bhopal gas disaster happened which was a crime against humanity the indian government allowed the 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 guy who was running the show warren anderson i believe his name was he should have been arrested on the spot but he was allowed to quietly slip out of india and obviously there is a great deal of american influence in in this because he was an american citizen us citizen the company union carbide was a us company so this is just one example of how the kind of influence even the americans had at the highest levels of the indian government so india was very much a playground of of spies of the intelligence agencies etc of both the superpowers india was very deeply infiltrated by both the sides and uh, so that's how it's been because see the politicians in the past have never cared about the national interest it was all about staying in power clinging to power and making money and that's how it how the game was played in those days you had so many scams india's defense industry was never allowed to take off even though we had uh, developed fighter aircraft like the marut which was a world class fighter aircraft etc but because these foreign powers uh, convinced our politicians that don't develop your arms industry just buy weapons from us and we will give you uh, a certain percentage of the deal and so on so you so clearly this cannot happen just by a politician coming to india and talking to you it's, it happens through covert means so the, for that you need uh, organs of intelligence like the cia the kgb and so on so that's why india was buying weapons from russia to a great extent india also bought weapons from the west to to a, to a lesser extent like the bofors uh uh howitzers 
we bought certain aircraft from uh, France. We had the Jaguar aircraft, I believe, and so on and so forth. So there's always been a significant infiltration of India's governance and other systems by spies from various countries. I'm sure there are there have been Pakistani and Chinese spies also in India, but that, that has not been revealed to a large extent. I'm sure these games are still being played as we speak, and such is the case always. So that's a little about that. Uh, very interesting question. That's something we have not covered, I think, before. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you for your question. Thank Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Who else do we have here? Who has been waiting for a long time? Has anybody been waiting for a long time? I'm not sure. Okay, let me bring in Aditya. Hello, sir. Nice to meet you. Hello. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Where are you from, sir? Yes, sir. sir. I am Aditya Kenbal. I'm currently in ninth grade and I am from Bhuvneshwar, Odisha. Bhuvneshwar, beautiful place, beautiful place. Very nice, yes. very nice. So, so yes. what's your question, sir? Yes, sir. sir. My question was, sir, uh, many days ago, sir, I was watching some documentaries in the in a YouTube channel, sir, which is I feel trustworthy. Sir, there it was uh, saying about relations between ancient Persian culture and the Vedic culture. Sir, so can you elaborate in uh, elaborate on it, sir? Because I have also noticed like they were saying in the Shah Nama, which is their greatest epic. There are many similarities to that of the Krishna story that we do have. And there are a lot of words that we have similar. Then one more uh, uh, question in that same uh, category that uh, why did they invert? Like they are having Ahura Mazda, which is like Asura or S is replaced with H. And so then they say that Devas are rejected gods. So, so please elaborate. Fantastic question. Very nice question. I'm glad that at this age you are showing an interest in these deep topics. Very interesting. So let me explain what is the relation between ancient India and ancient Persia. Because as you say, there is a great deal of uh, commonality in uh, the foundational stories, in the culture, in the language and so on. So let's talk about language first, for, for instance. Like you said, the ancient Persian language was very much very, very, very similar to the ancient uh, Sanskrit language. You just replace certain pronunciations with a different pronunciation. Instead of sir, you say ha and it becomes ancient Persian. So instead of Saraswati, you say hara, harawati, right? And, and so on. So S becomes H and that was more, more or less it. So it was just like a dialect of Sanskrit. Uh, so that's what ancient Persian language was. Now when it comes to the Shahanama, if you look at the, uh, if you study, if you read the Shahanama, if you look at the uh, legend of the foundation, the very first kings of Iran, they are the same kings and the same people that are mentioned in the Rig Veda, in the foundational story of the Rig Veda, right? So you have the same foundational myths, the same uh, ancient kings that are depicted in the Shahnama. So it's clear that the Iranians and the Indians were the same people at one point in time. The Persians were clearly the same as the Indians. And uh, so, so why is it why is it that way? So what happened was that at some point in time there was a migration out of India, and this they went westwards and they settled in Persia. The ancient capital of Persia was Parshwapur, which is now known as Pers Persepolis, right? Parshwapur, uh, the the clan, the Rigvedic or or post-Rigvedic clan of ancient Indians that went westwards and settled in Persia was called the Parshwa clan, the Parshwa people, and this name of the clan was given eventually it became the name of the land it became persia right and the, the capital city was persepolis which is parshwapur 
and so on. The language is the ancient Persian language was almost the same as Sanskrit. Later, it diverged slowly, right? So even today, today's Persian language, the Parsi language, the Iranian language, it is quite similar to 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 Indian languages. I have known uh, people from Iran who have stayed in India for a year or two. They have picked up Hindi very easily. It be, and, and they speak Hindi just like natives, you know. So it tells you about the closeness linguistically uh, of the of the two languages. So the Persians, the ancient Persians, were the descendants of of an, uh, of ancient Indians, not the other way around. And they 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 are not the descendants of some Aryan invasion into India and Persia. It was an it was a number of successive waves of migrations out of India, westwards and northwards, and Persia was one of the places that was settled by these uh, one of these waves of of migration. And the language is very similar. For instance, we say Chandra, they say Chand, right? Uh, there is this uh, this ancient uh, Iranian Persian hero called Khurshed, right? Uh, so Khurshed is supposed to be uh, he is supposed to represent the sun. Khurshed. So let me tell you the origin of the name Khurshed. And there is another name called Jamshed also, right? Jamshed Khurshed. So in, in the ancient mythology, you uh, in Sanskrit, what was it like? Uh, in Sanskrit, the name of the sun, the word for sun is Swar. Swar means the sun and the word Kshet means shining. So when you say Swarakshet, it means shining sun. So this term Swarakshet got transformed into Khurshed. So if you ask the people of Iran, what is the meaning of the name Khurshed? They will say it is the sun. Right? The word, the name Khurshed means the sun in ancient, in the Persian uh, culture. So that's the same as Swarakshet of, in Sanskrit. Similarly, the sun, the firstborn sun, of the great sun god was Yama. He was the first human being, Yama, right? And because he was the son of Surya, of Swar, so Yama was also very shining. So he was called Yamakshet, shining Yama. And that became Jamshed in Persian, right? So you can see the similarities from these little anecdotes, from these little vignettes of knowledge. So the, the fact of the matter is that the Persians are the descendants of ancient Indians. The home of the Indo-Iranians and the Indo-European peoples is ancient India. It's very ancient. And that's why these similarities exist. And sir, nowhere actually, else... sir, I got interested in this topic, sir, because uh, one day I was searching about Zoroaster, sir, as we were taught by our teacher. So it, yeah. it was written Zarathustra. Sir, I suddenly Zarathustra. felt like Sanskrit. Sir, then I listened to some hymns of their uh, and their culture. Sir, they also worship fire like us, and their pronunciation, sir, is like Sanskrit. Yes. yes. So Zarath Ustra, in Sanskrit, Zarath means yellow or golden, and Ustra means camel. So Zarath Ustra means yellow camel or golden camel, or perhaps old camel. Right. So it's a Sanskrit name. Now he created. He he proclaimed himself as the as the guy who has uh, received some wisdom from god and he inverted the 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 morality so the devas became kind of evil and the asuras became kind of good in india the devas are kind of better and the asuras are kind of have a negative slightly negative connotation so he inverted that 
and yet the truth is that zoroastrianism is not a monotheistic religion it is very much a polytheistic religion just like hinduism and that is something people try to hide from us you know so yeah it's a, it's a very fascinating topic the ancient uh, relations between india and ancient persia everything came from india zarathustra was born a hindu because the, he's the one who started zoroastrianism so he came up with this idea so they were all hindus they were all indians they all had the same culture it changed over time right so great question aditya wonderful nice thank talking you, to you thank, thank you, you so much thank you hope to meet thank you again thank you thank you bye bye all right whom shall we bring in whom shall we bring in let us bring in kumar hello kumar uh hello sir very good evening to you nice meeting you where are you from i'm from paradeep odisha very nice paradeep odisha so what's your question yes sir so uh, first of all sir if you allow me to rectify one factual mistake that you uh, have been while answering oh, please one of the me. previous yeah, thank you very much sir so kind of you so actually it was mirage aircraft that we have brought from france in the early 1980s it was not jaguar uh, jaguar was european origin mainly based on united kingdom fantastic thank you so much actually you, jaguar is an anglo french aircraft so it is french as well let me tell you that all right okay, okay so fine question yes sir so my question is regarding the nri community uh, as an indian despite having a large presence of nri community throughout the world but unlike the jewish or chinese in certain extent we are not able to influence the global narratives and apart yes. from that and would, should we celebrate the success of our nri community because to an extent i believe it promotes brain drain uh, what is your take on this so it's a good question i think i have answered this before i mean people ask me about uh, people like kamala kamala harris and uh, ratan um, sorry sundar pichai and and so on and so forth i mean does their success have any positive effect effect on india and clearly it does not because it doesn't contribute anything to india right and they are contributing to the success of the united states and of the west i mean google has no pro india policies whatsoever despite mr sundar pichai being their uh, boss and so on right now the nri community as opposed to the global jewish diaspora contributes very little to india either geopolitically or strategically or in any other way or if you take in into account the chinese diaspora they are very much pro china pro pro ccp policies and so on but in india it's not the case so there are a couple of reasons for that first of all when it comes to the jewish community uh, judaism is a very uh, it's a monotheistic religion uh, it's a kind of compared to a polytheistic religion like what we call hinduism judaism is very monochromatic and it's very very clear clearly focused on the uh, national interest of israel and therefore the entire jewish community has a very strong interest in the national in, in furthering promoting the national interest of israel when it comes to india we are a very divided nation we uh, we don't even have a concept of nation uh, we don't even have the concept of the national interest if i asked somebody on the street what is india's national interest they have absolutely zero idea and we don't have a strong sense of community there is no 
common thread that seems to bind India together. And therefore, when Indians go abroad, they simply uh, drift off into their own orbit and uh, they try to assimilate and mix in with whatever country uh, they have settled in and they try to contribute to, the, to their country only and they feel a sense of alienation towards India, which is not the case in, in the case uh, in, the, in, in, in the instance of Israel or China. Two examples. So that's the reason, because we don't have any strong common thread that binds us together. Our constitution is a foreign constitution. It doesn't give you a sense of identity of being Indian. What If I ask somebody, what does it mean to be Indian? I will get a thousand different answers and none of them will will uh, have something in common with each other. So these are the reasons. This is the challenge that India faces together. We have been bound together as a nation state, even though in the past we used to be a civilization state in which we had something common that bound us all together despite living in so many different parts of the world and having so many differences in, in language and, and uh, traditions and all that. And still we had something in common in the past. Today we don't have, a, have that. We have been defined in a way that doesn't give us anything in common. So that's the reason why Indians and NRIs don't really contribute anything to us. They try to escape from India because India actually doesn't give anything to Indian citizens. There is so much scarcity in India. You don't get enough jobs. And if you get a job, you're treated very poorly. The government treats you terribly. You pay taxes, but you don't get good roads. You don't get good conditions. You get harassment all the time from the authorities. So everybody wants to leave India. And people think that it's because of India's culture that it is like this. It's not the case. It's because of India's governance system, which is a parasitic rent-seeking system. That's why India is in such a bad shape. So, so the thing is that NRIs go out and live abroad to escape these conditions in India. So yeah, it does contribute to the dra brain brain drain. And the solution is to reform India. It's, it's, not, it's not the fault of the NRIs, right? Right, so, sir, right sir. That's your answer. That's your answer. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sir, if you allow me, I would like to add a metaphor. Uh, about go the Rafael, sorry, the Mirage and Jaguar uh, thing that I have pointed out. Please go ahead, please go ahead, yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, and sir, in while the development phase, the France opted opted out of the Jaguar project in the last stage. So Jaguar is not fundamentally a French thing, it's more of a British thing. And to and it, it's uh, to counter it, they uh, created their own uh, Mirage program. Thank you very much for this information. Thank you. All right. Nice Thank talking you. to you. Okay. Yeah. Bye. All right. Who else do we have? Who else do we have? Hello, Panu. Hello, sir. Sir, I'm very. Hello? Yes, sir. Yes. I appeared. Sir, I'm very happy that you remember me. I yeah, I think I've seen you last time as well, right? Yes, yes sir. Nice I was the you. first person. Awesome, awesome. So, where, where are you from? So, I'm from Jammu and Kashmir. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I do recall now. Yes. So, what's your question? Sir, uh, can you tell me about Bappa Rawal and uh, Bappa Rawal? Yes, sir. Okay, good question. Bappa Rawal was a Rajput uh, king, I think, who resisted the Turkic invasions of India. So, I believe there is some kind of legendary story uh about him uh, because historians have once again not really researched uh, or given us any information, uh, any concrete information about Bapa Rawal. So whatever we know about him is through these semi-legendary stories about him. So one of the stories that I heard or read about uh, a long time ago is that Bapa Rawal was some kind of, some kind of a brigand of some, of some kind, right? And he used to get into fights with lots of people 
and so on and that that's why he was asked to leave his hometown and so on and he he built up a, a kingdom of sorts um he had a lot of followers who were all rajputs and uh, he met this uh, he met this uh, religious spiritual leader called baba goraknath who told him that uh, there is this terrible invasion of india that's happening in the northwest of india it is from the turks in present day pakistan afghanistan etc so he exhorted him to go with his uh, with his followers and fight off this invasion so baba rawal did that he went to punjab and he fought the turks he defeated them got rid of them expelled them from india and he was able to uh, delay the turkic invasions of india for a significant period of time and he founded a city in punjab which is now known as rawalpindi the, the town of rawal right and eventually after he returned back to his home, to to the to the to the heartland of india then they went northwards into northern india into the himalayan regions uh, the foothills of the himalayas and they settled down there baba rawal and his followers and because they were followers of baba goraknath that's why their their descendants are called the gorkhas so that is the legendary story that i have heard of course there is very little factual information available because we have lost our sources and our historians have done no re- real research but that's the, the 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 mythical not the mythical but semi legendary story i've heard i'm not saying he's a mythological character he is very much a historical character and a very significant historical character somebody who really fought for india and uh, repelled the turkic invasions of india so a very significant character but i think we need significantly more historical research into his life and times and into the great deeds that he did for the country so very interesting question thank you all right sir. thank you sir thank you banu nice to see you again thank you bye yes sir. good night sir good night good night all right who else do we have i can see Siddharth Siddharth is raising his hand let me bring in Siddharth hi hi sir can you hear me i can hear you yes sir where are you from sir bhubaneswar odisha well 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 today we have lots of people from odisha so nice to see that so nice to see that what's your question sir which form of power is more powerful is it the political power or the money power or any other form of power and especially that's, in our country that's a very good question power is the same throughout the world throughout the world power is the same thing so i would say that real power political power always trumps wealth money is not power money is something that buys you things but let me explain the difference between power and money wealth means you have a lot of money uh, we are you are able to access a lot of money and you can buy things and so on power is something else entirely power means you have a hundred soldiers heavily armed soldiers at your disposal who will obey you instantaneously without question and do whatever you say that is called real power and all political power is derived from actual street power in that manner if you look at the political parties in india they all have foot soldiers who can go out on the streets and shut down an entire city at a, at a moment's notice that is where actual political power comes from because they have an army of people you could say some some of these political parties i'm not naming any political party by the way there are hundreds of political parties in this country so i'm just talking in general not just india but across the world real political power comes out of this sort of power mao tse tung said that 
political power flows out of the barrel of a gun. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, so in politics, unless you have an army of foot soldiers who are willing to do willing to obey you instantaneously and do whatever you say unless you have that you don't really have political power and therefore when people say that this person should start a political party i mean you don't have the funds so so that's where funding comes in if you want to maintain an army of people like that then you need funds so yes yeah, money can. does contribute to some extent to this but you can raise an army of people without money too if you have the charisma and the uh, leadership qualities you know something so like ideology it's a complex thing. sorry something like ideology yes if you have the ideology and you can um, uh, bring people over to your ideology convince them and and show that you are a leader that you should that people should follow and so on then you can build a political movement out of it of course it is quite difficult that's why we have uh, so little of that happening but that is power real power is just the number of people who are willing to obey you instantaneously without question there is a difference between influence and power for instance let's say you are a person uh with a million followers on twitter and when you say something your followers are willing to listen to you and they may perhaps take you seriously or they may not perhaps take you seriously maybe they are following you because you are entertaining or maybe they are following you because you have something really interesting to say but that is merely influence they will not obey you without question and instantaneously so that is influence power is you actually own an army of people who will follow you and obey you instantaneously so that is the very fundamental a uh, definition of power how many people are willing to follow you and obey you instantaneously at what scale at what scale can you project that power you know so that's what it is sir you mentioned uh, previously that power translates into wealth but how how can that happen like in uh, india like there is have, of course if you have if you have a thousand people willing to follow you and and do whatever you say you can use them to extort the entire population of a city Uh, that's uh, that's how simple it is have you heard of hafta wasuli come on uh-huh. my friend wake up add two and two together it's all right there right in front of you if you have an army of people who will do what you say you can extort as much money as you want you can come to political power you can become uh, some uh, mp or mla or whatever or something higher than that and once you are in that position you can extort even more power uh, extort even more money so that is the relationship between power and money right very simple Got it. Yes, I got it. Thank you, sir. All right. Very nice talking to you. Good question. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Who else do we have? I can see Divyang. Let me bring in Divyang. Good evening, sir. Can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Your audio was not. I was on mute. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Right. Right. Where are you from? Very sir? happy to see you. Very happy to see you as well. Where are you from, sir? So I am from uh, Vadodara, Gujarat, India. But I'm currently working nice. in uh, Miami, Florida. Awesome, awesome. So it must be morning for you, right? Yeah, it's close to noon, twelve. All right, all right. So what's your question, sir? Uh, well, first of all, very happy to see you, all these young people and kids on your channel. So your noble cause Absolutely. is going in very good direction. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. So the question is, uh, uh, do we have a really track on our old uh, the texts, the Vedas and uh, Puranas? means i i don't know i have i have read read somewhere or um, heard somewhere that all original texts are in germany so does it something like that uh so i haven't uh, yeah first of all good question what about the original texts uh so 
I haven't heard that uh, the original texts are in Germany. There is no one original text. What we find is that there are many ancient temples which which uh, have these palm leaf manuscripts, and many of these manuscripts are have not been studied at all, and many of them are gathering dust. So there are many original texts right there, and some of them are uh, they, they have been studied, and the ASI and some other organs of the government are trying to digitize them or preserve them. But I think more than ninety five percent of these ancient manuscripts have not been. Uh, preserved they have not even been examined so i think even though we lost the vast majority of our texts in the destruction of our universities and libraries a thousand years ago still many of the temples that survived these destruction they actually do preserve and they still do contain many of these ancient texts for instance the uh, the arthashastra was rediscovered in this manner because uh, one of these ancient manuscripts was the arthashastra so so what what has been what happened is that these texts the vedas etc they were written very 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 long ago and they were passed on orally by rote memorization by precise memorization so and this this uh, tradition continued generation after generation for very very long time for many thousands of years and eventually maybe around 2000 or so years ago some people actually wrote it down and that's how it was preserved in the physical form and then many copies were made and many temples uh, had these copies and uh, similarly for the ramayana the mahabharat if you go to thailand or cambodia or whatever they have their own versions of the ramayana and mahabharat which they have also preserved for many many generations for more than 1000 2000 years possibly possibly so i would say that i don't know about the german uh, i'm sure even the germans uh, have some original texts which they may have taken from india because the germans were very much interested in indology and sanskrit because sanskrit is in some ways quite similar to the german language in terms of the kind of sandhi structure we have in sanskrit and the right. grammatical structure we have so the germans were very much interested in sanskrit you had german philosophers who were deeply influenced by the upanishads and the vedas and so on schopenhauer is one example Mm-hmm. so it's possible like you said that some original texts may currently be in uh, germany but i think we have way more original texts in india and we have not even studied them examined them carbon dated them to see how old they were and how long ago they were written but mm-hmm. i think that the majority of whatever is has survived is still in india and i hope that the government does show some initiative in preserving them and digitizing them so that we don't lose whatever right. knowledge we still have so the geeta press in gorakhpur they do have uh... many uh or means the tax i believe but they are out of funding or very low funding i believe yes the geeta press has done a very very important uh, they have played a very important role in preserving many of our ancient right. uh, texts they have uh, published versions of the, their version of the mahabharat the ramayana the geeta etc and many texts that people are not really aware of so they have done that but unfortunately it's not very well funded we have all these uh, we have all kinds of unnecessary things being funded yeah. but something as valuable as the geeta press which is doing such incredible and important work is not getting enough funding so that's the tragedy of modern india right and i hope the situation changes because the government has the funds the power to do to to change everything if they want you know right that's what i was about to say that instead of funding the farmer agitation and the ca protest <laughs> we should we should uh, uh, you know fund this type of thing but thank you very much for taking my question maybe i'll ask more question next time Thank you so much very nice to meet you thank you thank you bye bye okay whom shall we bring in many people are raising their hands hello 
Hi, can you see me? Uh, hello, sir. Sir, I am honored to talk to you, sir. Very nice to talk to you. Where are you from? Sir, I am right now in Punjab, Firozpur, sir. My father is okay, an okay. army. He is an army officer. Awesome, awesome. Salute yes. to your father, sir. Thank you, sir. So, so my question is that uh, how can we uh, remove democracy, like the present fake democracy, and instead implement the democracy? which was uh, used in ancient india so and also how can uh, do we have to point guns at the national politicians or uh, which countries would resist our uh, motion against the fake democracy which is controlled by the uh, britishers which, which is in, uh, indirectly controlled by the britishers so how can we do that right i, I am very much against pointing guns at anybody so we need to uh, you know we we need to consider uh, alternatives to that so the first thing is that uh, we need to ensure that everybody in india understands that the constitution that we are currently following has been imposed upon us undemocratically since we are talking about democracy the constitution should be uh, should come into force in a democratic manner let me give you an example let's talk about the us constitution when the americans won their war of independence their so called founding fathers drafted a constitution for their country it is about 7 pages long and then this constitution was put to a vote which means that the entire country was asked those who were eligible to vote white men only but whatever so they were asked whether they are willing to accept the constitution or not yes or no it's called a referendum so the constitution was put to a referendum and when the majority of those who were eligible to vote they approved the constitution only then did it become binding on the country so it was brought to power brought into effect through a democratic vote through a, through a referendum now when it comes to india the constituent assembly of india was undemocratic in its very genesis it did not represent the people of india it was a people who were a bunch of people who were hand picked uh, who were elected through an election that uh, uh, that involved the participation of about only 13% of the eligible population of india and many of the people of the constituent assembly were actually hand picked they were members of nominees of princely states and so on and so forth so first of all the constituent assembly that drafted the constitution did not represent the will of the people of india secondly after the constitution was drafted and created they put we the people of india on it but it was not put to a vote the people of india were not given the opportunity to either accept it or reject it it was just imposed upon us by force and that is the constitution we are forced to follow today and all our laws all our hindu phobic laws all all of it comes from there and of course the majority of the laws are still Uh, leftovers from the british regime from the, from the british occupation of india so if the people of india understand this fact if they come if they first of all people don't even know this they think that the constitution represents our will and the so called drafters of the constitution were uh, people who represented the will of the people of india which is a lie so this knowledge is not known to 99% of the people of india right and unless it is known people will not wake up so first the first step is that people need to know this that the constitution is an illegitimate undemocratically imposed constitution and secondly once they know this then they need to put pressure on the politicians to change it 
because if the constitution is illegitimate and undemocratic it has to be changed in a democratic manner so we need a new constituent assembly to draft a new constitution and then we will have real democracy if it is a properly done constitution in a democratic process then we will actually possibly have a true democracy we will have a new constitution that reflects our cultural and civilizational values not western values right so that's yes. what needs to happen pointing guns at people is counterproductive it's going to invite retaliation from the state and that's never going to help anyone but it has to be done in this manner spread the knowledge spread the fact that the constitution is illegitimate and undemocratic that's the first step we need to do right sir in earlier podcast uh, you have also mentioned that there are, there are countries who will resist uh, the uh, right now current government uh, uh intentions to make a hindu rashtra yeah, so what uh, who are those countries and why do they would resist this kind of motion which would happen in india it's the western world they want their their system of governance their system of values to be spread all across the world right so today we are following western values in the western system of governance and they want this uh, uh, this system to spread worldwide and they don't want it to be removed from any country the moment uh, somebody goes against the west you know what happens to them there's a regime change attempt and all that which we which we see everywhere for, for instance saddam hussein was part of the western machinery but eventually when he did something that they didn't did not like they removed him and so on and so forth so if uh, right now there are countries like russia which follow their own system iran which follows its own system uh, china which follows its own system and the west doesn't like that they are trying to undermine these countries i'm not saying we should support china but i'm just giving an example so the moment india tries to do that they are going to try and undermine us as well the west is all powerful right now but things are changing so india needs to bide its time and do it when the time is right that's your answer sir yes sir thank you sir thank you so much nice talking to you bye okay uh everyone's raising their hands hello hi sandeepan yes hi hi sir where are you from sir i am from kolkata kolkata very nice very nice been there long ago so what's your question sir so my question is that i have met a lot of i have studied with lot of uh, people from the west and i have come to realize that they are not as smart as indian means from my limited experience that i have so my question is that is it a true assumption or or is it, can it be proved genetically that we indians are the uh, are the most intelligent people when it comes to mathematics at least and means yeah so th- that was that was my question okay okay very nice question very good question so the answer uh, is something like this i think that people the world over are more or less the same actually but cultures and civilizations are different so if you take the average individual anywhere in the world their level of intelligence will depend on mostly the kind of nutrition they had through their childhood so people who were malnourished or who went through poverty and therefore they did not get sufficient nutrition their iq level will be low unfortunately so that is one thing that is found across the world so there are places in sub saharan africa where the overall average iq is low now people like nasim nicholas talib say that iq itself is a pseudo scientific swindle and it does not take everything into account overall intelligence and so on 
so what i would say is that i would not uh, say that it's a genetic thing that some people are more intelligent some are less intelligent i would say it's a cultural and civilizational thing so if you look at the history of the past 10000 years of the world you will see that india was the most technologically scientifically advanced civilization in human history all of mathematics astronomy everything came out of india we have the oldest evidence of astronomical observations in the world we the first recorded evidence of a supernova which is from about 5500 bce from uh, northern india kashmir and mathematics developed in india calculus trigonometry infinite series everything developed in india it was later appropriated by the west ayurveda pharmacology toxicology uh, astronomy navigation so many sciences everything developed in india in the in the saraswati uh, sindhu phase of our civilization we had extremely advanced uh, architecture town planning we had uh, standardization of weights and measures and uh, if you look at our ancient literature we seem to have figured out the speed of light several thousand years ago and so on so civilizationally we have been able to create an environment for a very long period of time in which the the pursuit of pure knowledge was not just encouraged it was looked it was regarded as the highest ideal and the in uh, the highest thing one can pursue in, in in one's human existence so it is a cultural and civilizational thing that indians always produce the greatest thinkers the greatest philosophers the greatest mathematicians the greatest scientists and so on so i think i would i would not say that it's a genetic thing that indians possibly may be superior to people from other parts of the world in terms of intellect i think uh, it's a cultural and uh, civilizational thing if you create the right sort of environment then even the most average person will be uh, motivated to pursue knowledge and to try and seek and try and contribute some some kind of uh, advancement in knowledge to humanity so i think it's a cultural and civilizational thing and unfortunately we have lost that right now so we need to rebuild that you know so so if it is a cultural thing but we started it first right so why why yes. the western people couldn't start it uh, before us we are the ones who who started uh, the hindu hindu culture this such a complicated culture that we have started why they couldn't start before us because we had the culture that promoted such uh, such pursuits pursuit of knowledge pursuit of excellence it is something that uh, was built over a very long period of time maybe 10000 years or more and uh, that was preserved in other parts of the world maybe we, they did not have the kind of climate that we had here so that we could live this peaceful life and we could build the large cities right in uh, in europe for instance you have a very different climate it's very cold and uh, it's it's hard to live to build large civilizations and unless you are the 21st century or 20th century and we know that people who lived in other parts of the world lived rather primitive lives i would not use it as a say this in terms of a value judgment it's merely an observation that people in other parts of the world lived rather primitive lives compared to the great civilization in the saraswati sindhu region and the rest of india so if you live a life that is fraught with danger in which you have uh, in which you have fights and clashes with other tribes and all that and if you don't have a settled system of agriculture and all those things then you are not going to be able to develop any culture or knowledge or science or philosophy i mean if you if you don't know whether you'll be alive tomorrow or not you will not be able to think philosophical thoughts right so that's the kind of system we had it was a very peaceful culture 
and civilization for many thousands of years. I mean, there's this article in the New Scientist that says that the Indus Valley region seems to have had a complete absence of warfare for a very long period of time. So these are the reasons, these are the factors that create an environment that is conducive to the uh, intellectual uh, thought process. And that's why we had that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot, sir, for that. Thanks for your question. Very interesting question. Thank you. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Okay, let's take some more questions. Do we have anybody? Okay, here we have Mr. Akshay Kabra. Hi. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? Where are you from? Uh, So I'm from Udaipur, Rajasthan. Very nice. Very nice. What's your question? Uh, so, sir, uh, I want to ask you, uh, recently in China, there was an article trended from their media house named Soho about the Chinese expansion in till 2050. So, do you believe that China can take over after take, uh, China can uh, take over Taiwan, Andhra, uh, Arunachal Pradesh and then uh, Russian land? Do you believe in this theory uh, that China can do this thing by 2050? Uh, I think that if the Chinese are are allowed, first of all, it's about what we allow them to do. And secondly, it's about what they are capable of doing. If they are able to sustain the economic growth that they would like to see, then they will have the resources to build up a very powerful military. And they certainly are an expansionist uh, nation. The Chinese Communist Party envisages complete global uh, hegemony across the world. They want uh, to recreate a middle kingdom kind of of thing in which China is the center of the universe and everybody comes and pays tribute to the the Chinese. And it is the only large power in the world. All other powers are either either small or completely fragmented or weak. So they would like to see India to be broken up into pieces. They would like to see parts of India be absorbed into China like Arunachal Pradesh. And uh, they would like to see India broken up into north, south, east, west, all that. They are, they have been fomenting problems in India for a very long, long period of time, since the 1950s, 60s, in Kashmir, in the northeast of India. So yes, they definitely have this sort of agenda. They have this dream of taking the uh, taking over the world. They also have unfinished business with the Russians. They almost went to war with Russia in the 1960s. Russians, the, uh, the USSR almost nuked China, which uh, it almost came to that. They had a territorial dispute for a very long time, which was settled in the 1990s and 2000s, I believe. So that is something the Chinese haven't forgotten. As as they grow more powerful, they will want to reclaim that territory also from the Russians or to claim it it and so on. So the Chinese, uh, the, the rise of China is not a peaceful rise. They want to take over, first of all, first of all, they want to take back Taiwan, like everybody knows. And once that happens, they will want to take over other parts like Arunachal Pradesh and so on. And they will want to fragment India. So I believe that they are very serious about this. They have been writing about this for for a very long time. Unfortunately, most of the writings, most of the publications are in the Chinese language. And since in India, we have not uh, developed the scholarship in the Chinese language so that we understand them. That's why we don't really know about it. But the West has been studying this. There has been... uh, about 20 years ago, there was this book, this publication called Unrestricted Warfare by a couple of Chinese military officers, which speaks about all these things, about militarizing uh, law, militarizing other things as well, and uh, using the system of uh, complete warfare, and so on. So the Chinese have had these this agenda for a very long time. So we have to take it seriously. The question is, will they be able to sustain 
the growth that has led them to where they are today because right now the chinese economy seems to be floundering it seems to be under recession uh, the numbers that are coming out of china say that there's about 5 or 6% growth but the actual figures may maybe 1 or 2% only or even less than that because you cannot really trust the chinese numbers so if that is the case then the chinese economy is stagnating and there that could be actually a problem for the world because it may make the chinese communist party a little desperate and they will try and grab whatever they can right now so that is a possibility but the chinese have the agenda for sure to rule the entire world so we have to take it very seriously and we have to develop our own strength so that that doesn't happen right so do you believe that china uh, is still playing that divide and rule card in india absolutely it's always done that it will always do that no question about it it is doing that yes because as you know okay. many indian political parties <laughs> have certain uh, kinds of agreements etc with the chinese whether it's the indian communist party or some other parties and so on so yeah that divide and rule is very much there they are, they are, they will keep on doing that so we have to be on the alert and we have to be aware of their agenda right okay thank you sir thank you so much nice talking to you nice speaking to you bye okay let us bring in swati good evening hello good evening sir good evening swati where are you from sir first of sir first of all i would like to tell you that i am a science student and uh, in a million of years i would have never thought that i would love history history was one of the subjects that i hated the most during my school years but for the past one year just because of you and your podcast i've fallen in love i've fallen in love with history and thank you thank you so much sir for that my pleasure my pleasure thank you so much uh, so, so sir what's your my question? Uh, question to you is that um, we have read we have listened to it many times that uh, in our epics in our texts many ashudhiyas have crept in there are certain editions that have been done to our epics and just because uh, now it is thousands of year old stories and itihas and we don't know sanskrit that much so sir how can we uh, you know decipher that this is an ashudhi this is an edition because many a times we hear that uttar ramayan is actually not a part of the original valmiki ramayan so such type of ashudhiyas how can we decipher it on our own uh we can not do it to the complete extent because we don't have the different editions and versions of these texts uh, chronologically so in let's say that it was written just hypothetically let's say the ramayan was written 5000 years ago hypothetically and then if we i'm going to mute you okay so hypothetically let's say it was written uh, 5000 6000 years ago and let's say we have all the editions of the ramayan edition 1 2 3 4 5 in case we have that then we can see what editions and what um, modifications were done and in that case we will be able to tell which is the original version but unfortunately we don't have that most of our ancient texts got burned in those turkic invasions of india so whatever little we have we have to treat it as a great treasure and unfortunately we will not be able to tell what changes what modifications or deletions if any happened at what period in time so unfortunately what we have now is what we have and we have to treat it 
as the uh, as the sacred text we do know that lots of changes have happened over time because you, there are there are versions of the ramayana in other countries southeast asia thailand cambodia indonesia bali etc in which you have different versions of these stories we have certain embellishments we have certain new characters small minor characters that are that are added to it for instance there is a version of the ramayana in which there is this mermaid who meets lord hanuman during uh, the uh, passage to sri lanka uh, to lanka and uh, he actually marries this mermaid and so on which is not there in the original ramayana in india so this is an addition that has been done in another version of the ramayana and so on and so forth so there are many such local versions of the ramayana which have slightly different tales and all that unfortunately there is no way of knowing which are the ashuddhis which are the additions which is the actual original text there is no way of knowing it unfortunately so what we have to do is we have to preserve all these different versions of the texts and we have to regard the all of them as the sacred text that's the only thing we can do right now right version of the texts uh, so sir thank you so much for your answer and sir there is just one more suggestion that i have for your webinar um many many times you have told that we need india as a country needs a dharmic constitution so sir if you can make a little bit of webinar what will be the dharmic constitution or what changes we can make in the present constitution to make it a little dharmic so it will be a very helpful for all of us i guess thank you thank you for the suggestion thank you so much all right thank, thank you, you thanks for, thank for, you for so the question much. thank you bye all right whom shall i bring in that i have not spoken to earlier let me bring in prajwal hi good evening yeah sir thank you for giving me chance very nice to meet you where are you from sir anandit maharashtra very nice okay what's your question sir so my question is uh, can anyone write research paper on history or any institutional background required for that and uh, how to start I... it sir yes so i think i don't think any institutional background is required to write a research paper in history what you have to do is you need to have sufficient knowledge about the topic that you're writing about and you need to know how to write a research paper what are the what what uh, things are needed you need to obviously be able to cite uh, sources original sources and uh, proper sources and you need, you need to be able to uh, structure your argument and your paper properly if you do that if it is a high quality research you can submit it to any reputed or or official uh, research journal and you you don't need to be affiliated with any institution for that you can do it even if you are unaffiliated even if you are an independent researcher right so as long as you know how to write a proper research paper and as long as your research paper is high quality and it's original you should have no issue in being able to get your work published in a research journal right so actually i belongs to arevashya community but uh, okay. many people from uh, south india they belong they believe that uh, they are not hindus they are dravidian so i really want to uh, write something on that topic or do something on it. that is great that is great so i think uh, you should go ahead and do that and uh, as long as your argument is good as long as the paper is well written and it has sufficient sources etc as required then i don't think there should be any problem in you submitting and having a research paper on this particular subject published right so so it's a it's a it's great to see that you you have this motivation to do that so go ahead and do it i would say do it yeah thank you thank you very much 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Bye bye. Pranav Nair. Hello. Hello, sir. Good evening. Am I audible, sir? Good evening. Yes, you are audible. Yes. Sir, I am a huge fan of your work and how much information you are actually disseminating to the general audience. I'm from Kerala, and uh, my I have so many questions to you. I wish I had a podcast or something so I could ask everything. But I know uh, I'll have to ask only one question. Uh, my question is, sir, in uh, even though I'm not so widely read in the Vedas and associated things, they talk about a substance called soma. And uh, this substance apparently uh, was supposed to be ingested by the priest during rituals. And uh, I'm wondering whether this substance is some kind of hallucinogen or is it comparable to all these shamanistic rituals where they use uh, stuff like ayahuasca and all in the South American jungles. And whether this actually produces some kind of altered state of consciousness, which uh, helps in maybe perceiving the world a little differently or in a more pacifistic way, which may help us to uh, enlighten ourselves. Uh, what is your take on this? Whether whether such substances were used or whether they were not, uh, whether they were like uh, decried by the ancient Vedic community. That's a very good question, Pranam. Very interesting question. Soma, what is the, what, what exactly is Soma? Unfortunately, today we have lost the identity of this herb or this plant or whatever it was. Now, if you look at the Vedas, there is a significant amount of references to the great uh, Soma, Somaras. They call it Somaras. And Soma, the, the Soma is also associated with the moon. That's why they call Monday Somavar. Right? Monday is the day of moon. In, in French, it's called Lundi, which is the day of the lune, which is the moon. So in French, it is the moon day. In English, it is the moon day. And in, in Sanskrit, it is Somavar. And Soma is again associated with the, with the moon. That's very interesting. Now, uh, Somaras is associated, is, is believed, if, if you look at the depictions and the way it is described in the Vedas, it is said that the great warrior Indra, before going to battle, would drink lots of Somaras because it gave him a lot of strength and energy and the vigor to fight in the battle. So that tells me that it's not a hallucinogenic uh, compound or, or substance because if you are intoxicated and you go to war you're gonna lose your head right there right so so that is a very interesting clue in the Vedas in the Rig Veda I believe so it is something the warriors would drink before going to war because it gave them strength energy and vigor now the question is what is the identity of this uh, particular plant is it one plant is it a mixture of plants we don't we are not quite sure now this Parsis the Persians who are the descendants of our ancient ancestors they also have something called a yasna, which is the same thing as the yagna. And they also drink homa. They, they call it homa, which we call soma. And the plant that they use in the, the homa ceremony is called the ephedra plant, which is kind of, a, it is actually a banned substance in athletics because it, it is a performance in, enhancing substance. It kind of gives you some kind of performance kick. So it does seem to be in line with what is described in the Vedas, that you drink Soma and you get more energy and strength and you can go and fight a war and actually win it. So the ephedra plant is a performance enhancing, uh, it has some performance enhancing qualities. It is a banned substance in athletics and in com competitions. And it is what the Iranians, the Parsis have been using as their Homa plant.
Now, is it the original soma plant of our Vedas? We are not quite sure. Some researchers have, have said that it is the ephedra plant. Some people have said that it is the uh, it is one of those mushrooms, those magic mushrooms kind of things, uh, which could probably possibly be the soma plant. So there's a number of theories out there. Unfortunately, none of these theories have been has been proven conclusively. So at the end of the day, it is still a question that's still open. And we still haven't completely solved the mystery of what is the identity of the soma plant. But clearly there was something that did exist. And there was even a de depiction of the process that was used to uh, extract the soma rust. So you press the stalks of the plant and extract the soma rust and then that's what you drank and that's how you get, got the energy. So it's one of the big mysteries in our ancient history. And it has still not been solved. It is mostly Western researchers who have been trying to solve it. Indians obviously have been sleeping all this time but i think hopefully something will change and maybe we'll be able to figure out what it was so that's a very interesting question thanks for asking this thank you sir thank you so much nice meeting you thank you bye thank you okay sushant has been waiting very patiently let, let me bring in sushant hi sushant uh hello sir again this is my second time uh, oh it is very nice so uh, my question is uh, that uh, uh, even uh, after the colonization done by Mughals, uh, essentially uh, means somehow we were we were colonized under the Mughals, right? So even though uh, we were colonized against uh, in the Mughal era, uh, we were able to uh, uh, fight back and create our own independent empires, uh, even though they were a small. Or uh, smaller of some sorts. So why weren't we able to do the same uh, when the British colonized us? Right, that's a very good question. So uh, the Mughals were defeated conclusively by the Maratha Marathas. Uh, it started. I'm going to mute you because it's a lot of noise. But all right. So the Mughals were defeated by the Marathas by the Maratha Empire. Eventually, the Maratha Empire was able to reclaim and and and. Uh, and free and liberate India from the Turkic occupation. The Maratha Empire went all the way up to the uh, up to parts of Afghanistan, etc. So all of India was free. And unfortunately, because of the infighting between the Marathas and because of their uh, because the succession plan went wrong, and you had weaker leaders who came up, that's why the British were able to defeat the Maratha uh, the Marathas and eventually take over India and colonize India. So, and what the British did was what the Mughals did not do. They they created these artificial famines. Every year, millions of Indians died in these artificial famines because the logic was that if the Indians are so weak that they are dying, if there is no food, then how will they fight? So that is one strategy the British used to create this large-scale uh, environment of starvation throughout India, which prevented Indians from fighting back. Still, Indians did fight back, like in 1857, in which the we almost won the thing, you know. But and and after that, the, what the British did was that they changed the Indian education system. They imposed their colonial system on India. So slowly, Indians started getting brainwashed, and they started looking upon the British as as actually good people, as the superior race. And this uh, Indians started looking at the British culture as superior to Indian culture, and so on. Uh, the, uh, the education was uh, imposed in the English language. Indians were brainwashed. Indians were portrayed as inferior. And then the British started this political movement called the Indian National Congress, in which British educated people were brought to the top and they were portrayed as India's 
national independence leaders even though they were actually delaying india's independence so it is this very interesting very well thought out very well planned strategy of the british that ensured that their uh, rule lasted this long and that's why we had such poor leaders and that's why we are still to a very large extent mentally colonized so it was a very well crafted strategy of divide and rule and impose their foreign culture and make indians ashamed of their own culture that is why we are in the situation where we, where we are today so good question so uh, yes um, i have one more question so no uh, no i'm i'm sorry only one question per person very sorry maybe next time maybe next time because i have to treat uh, everybody you... equally no, i have to treat everybody books, equally uh, okay sorry sir. sorry sorry okay thank you so much for your question thank you thank you thanks for your question bye okay who all do we have i can see a number of people waiting let me bring in tanay hello hello sir good evening so i good evening uh, i'm from kolkata Uh, and uh, nice i have a question about geopolitics so so sir like yep. uh, how long do you think that uh, that china's bully and conquer policy is going to work in in the geopolitical world and sir and with the ongoing uh, crisis in china such as the recent power crisis uh, is it going to add any new tactic to its current playbook or or other things are going to remain the same okay good question very good question so china's policy will not change they their objectives are the same and therefore their strategies and tactics will evolve according to the situation but their objective won't change they want to become the superpower the sole superpower in the world they want to displace the us and make uh, and essentially uh, become the sole superpower in the world they want to see india fragmented and broken up they want to absorb parts of india like arunachal pradesh and so on so their rise is going to be a non peaceful rise which which the world now knows very well of course like you mentioned the chinese economy does seem to be showing very strong signs of recession it seems to be floundering and therefore their tactics will evolve based on that because they need money they they have risen to the position they are in right now because of their economic power so they have pursued certain policies that gave them double digit growth year upon year for a very long long time and that's why their economic might has grown to the extent that it has today and that is also the reason why they have been able to build a powerful military now that their economy seems to be under a recession they will perhaps become desperate and they will perhaps try to take over taiwan very quickly and maybe indulge in some other military misadventures there is a possibility so there is the state we are in right now so based upon how things change they will certainly like you said uh, try to change their tactics and strategies so if their economy doesn't uh, grow the way they want it to grow then they may become a little desperate and they may try to grab whatever they can right now with the economic might that, that they still have perhaps the economy will be shrink in the future so that is a possibility so it all depends things change and your strategies and tactics have to adapt to deal with the changing geopolitical and global environment so we are going to see changes certainly uh it is quite likely it, it does look kind of quite likely that the chinese economy is is going to slow down and that may okay. actually be a bad sign for the world right okay sir uh, sir and uh, do you think that uh, that china is is trying to target the 
the Digboy oil fields in, in, in Arunachal Pradesh for its military campaigns. Okay, uh, I'm supposed to take only one question per person. Oh, okay, so my sir. question is no. My question is no. My answer to that question is no. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for your question. Nice meeting you. Thank you so much, sir, for, for letting Thanks. me ask. I'm a really big fan. I've been waiting for this question to be answered for a really long time. Awesome. And, nice meeting you. Thank and thank I you. find no one more trustworthy than you to do it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great honor thank for you, me. Sir. Thank Hare you, Krishna. Hare Krishna. Bye-bye. Hello, Rahul. Can you hear me? I can't hear you, sir. You're not audible. I cannot hear you. Very sorry. Okay. Um, I will take you in next time. Thank you so much. Very sorry. I could not hear you. Okay. Let's bring in somebody else. Uh, who all can I see here? I will bring in Mr. Abhinay. Hello. Good evening. Once again, I can't hear you. Sorry, can't hear you. Okay, next time, next time. I'll bring in somebody else. Whom shall I bring in? Let me bring in Ujwal. I hope I can hear Ujwal. Hi, Ujwal. Good evening. Uh, good evening, sir. So, uh, good evening, good evening. I really admire your work. Uh, you're really a, a great person because of you. Like several theories, like Aryan vision theory, which uh, made up in our mind. We got logic and researched. Uh, and today we know that it's false. It's all Dravid nationalist, you know, fault that they are dividing people. So, uh, so my question is, like today's Indian Navy, as compared to the the world's elitist naval forces, is uh, you know quite less in comparison to uh, like United States or China. But uh, in the past, like if we consider the Chanakya, he talked about the four kinds of ship, then the Cholas. But after the 13th century, uh, the decline of the Cholas leadership, we saw a dearth for like four or five centuries. And then uh, in the Marathas, we got uh, the naval power on a rise. So, so while uh, uh, reading about the Marathas, I got to know about one of the uh, elitist naval admirals who has been kind of erased from the Indian history and his name was Kanhoji Angade. So, sir, may yes. you please uh, shed some light on his achievements, uh, the great uh, Maratha admiral Kanhoji Angade. Okay, so the thing is, see, I haven't studied Kanoji Angre's career in great detail. I'm, I'm certainly aware of the fact that he was one of the greatest naval warriors of in our entire history. And uh, you could say that he's, in a way, the, the father of the Indian Navy, because it was during the Maratha era that because of his achievements, the Maratha Navy was able to expand so much. It was able to defeat the Portuguese in a number of battles and various other forces. So that's what I can tell you because I haven't read his career in great detail. That is a very specific niche topic. My interest is kind of global. So I will not be able to give you right now details of his exploits. I know that he was their greatest admiral. He is the father or the greatest, uh, the greatest leader in the Maratha Navy. And if I, I certainly have read about him, if I recall that uh, 
he had defeated the portuguese in a number of battles he had even inducted some europeans as officers in the maratha navy yes sir so, so yes sir yeah. uh, he inducted dutch actually and dutch, uh, right? sir there's one uh, the, yes sir and there was one more incidents like portuguese and english navy combined together in attack but still they failed twice to defeat him yes and what i recall was that his strategy and tactics were very innovative he he relied not on large ships but on smaller and more agile ships faster ships which were able to maneuver out maneuver the european uh, naval ships and all that and that's why he was, he was able to defeat them multiple times uh, and, and even so that he even so that he captured the ship of the president of uh, the bombay presidency so that hcs algerine so that's why i thought like it's very interesting to discuss about such a naval admiral who was like greater than the whole world's uh, navy combined i absolutely agree he's one of the greatest naval officers and greatest naval commanders of all time in the world and it is a really a tragedy that we are not recognizing such incredible heroes that we have had such great leaders of our people and of our, of our country uh, even the marathas i mean uh, compared to the cholas etc compared to the cholas the chalukyas etc the marathas have still got a little bit more exposure in our textbooks and yet it is not sufficient yes, the kind of uh, the way the marathas have been portrayed is is rather insufficient the portrayal is very insufficient and people like kanoji kanoji angre etc don't even get a mention which is a tragedy which needs to change and that's why i keep saying we need to revise and revisit our history textbooks and decontaminate our history so it's a very interesting uh, topic that you have brought forth thank you for bringing this up okay thank you sir thank you very much thank you bye okay i will have to limit my next question to only one person because we are reaching the end of our thing of tonight's session so i can see a number of people waiting only one will get the chance i am very sorry very sorry let me bring in let me bring in jignesh hi jignesh uh, good evening hello sir i have been a huge fan of you i have been following your beer biceps podcast for like so many times i listened them twice first on youtube and then on spotify so i am from nai mumbai india and my question is a little like a personal but many of my uh, students of my age have this question so i am in my like final year of engineering and i need to know that whether if i go out and come back again for studying purpose then it will like benefit or like harm for my country like will it be good for brain drain or it will be bad like if i study outside gain some more knowledge and then come back and be prosperous in terms of economy rather than like staying here yes i get it very good question what i would say is that you should do right now right now you're very young right now what you should do is you should do what is best for you and your personal career so go wherever it take wherever you need to go if you have to go abroad go abroad get your education there i would say that in the next 10 20 years build a career whether it's in india whether it's abroad wherever you can and and become the best version of yourself that you possibly can be try and achieve your full potential and later on in life maybe after your 30s or 40s at that point in time maybe if you're abroad maybe you can come back to india and contribute something to the country but right now you have to focus only on yourself only on your personal growth because unless you grow up into somebody who is who can contribute some genuine value to the country there's no point so right now do whatever is best for yourself 
and later when you have achieved something of significance then you can think of contributing to the country so that is the simple strategy every student in the country needs to follow right now do be- what is best for yourself Correct? yes sir so i like a small quote that you said in the podcast like for years i have been trying like trying to go abroad but the quote that you said that when a structure is about the cumble the rats are the first to leave the structure so that what made me think whether to like stay in india and do something good for my country rather than glorifying the west Yes, so thank no, you, sir, no, do for... whatever is best for you. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. 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 and i hope to meet each one of you in the future and hopefully someday we'll even meet in person so the great session wonderful thank you so much and i will see you again next week thank you everybody have a good night have a good day until next time bye